Hello, and welcome to the podcast by Future Observatory, the Design Museum's research program supporting the green transition. I'm Justin McGurk, the director of Future Observatory. And I'm Sher Potter, Future Observatory's curatorial director. In this podcast, we'll be introducing you to design researchers who've put issues of climate and the environment at the heart of their practice. These researchers work across a range of disciplines, but all of their investigations have major implications for how we design the world. In this episode, we'll be discussing how pollution found in the UK's rivers, streams and lakes could be managed or even exploited through a design intervention. England has some of the worst polluted rivers in Europe, with every single river failing a pollution test in 2020. In the rest of the UK, the water quality picture is only slightly better, with only 33% of rivers in Northern Ireland described as in good condition, compared to 40% in Wales and 66% in Scotland. Now about a third of this pollution comes from sewerage, something that water companies are being pressured to tackle. But arguably, nearly half comes from excessive use of fertiliser and pesticides in agriculture, which run off into nearby bodies of water. I went to meet Samuel Eilif, a materials engineer and a design researcher in residence at Future Observatory. He's researching how the water-based phosphorus and nitrates from fertiliser wash-off can be captured by algae farms and transformed into a valuable design resource. Some of the algae. It feels a little bit like hair, like this kind of weird meshy hair, and it's quite easy to break apart. I was just going to say that. It looks like a dark green hairball. Yeah, and especially when you feel it in the water, it feels exactly like hair in water. Yeah, it does actually. That's yeah. pretty creepy. It's weird, it's gross. Down on the banks of the River Lee in Hackney in East London, I'm getting my hands wet with Samuel Eilif. We're crouched on the edge of a towpath with cyclists and walkers passing by. And we're pulling clumps of algae out of the murky water of the River Lee Navigation Canal. That's actually quite an incredible material though, isn't it? It feels different to how I imagine. It's not slimy at all. It really is super fibrous. Samuel has brought me to this precise spot because it's here, along the banks of the city river, in the shadow of warehouse conversion apartments, craft breweries and bars, and London City Airport, that the inspiration for his current work on river pollution started. He was already interested in freshwater seaweed, or macroalgae, as a material to make bioplastics when... I used to live very close to here and I would take walks along the River Lee all the time. And while I was researching algae, I was learning about algal blooms and it was just this serendipitous, like, looking into the river and, oh, there's an algal bloom happening right in front of me. It was the kind of tangible physical connection I needed to something to be the impetus to start work. Now at that particular time, the conditions were ideal for the growth of algae blooms, warmer temperatures, calm weather, and he noticed a sudden change in the water. What was so profound was how quickly it went from just looking like a normal river to being completely covered in this mat of dark green algae. And from far away, you couldn't really see anything. It just looked almost surreal, just this mat of green. But on closer inspection, you see that it's this algae that's covered the entire river. And it was for a really large stretch of the river as well. For about a week, I was watching it kind of slowly move down 
the river, it got to the lock, and then there was this real kind of build-up of rubbish with the algae and everything. It was really gross, and then finally see it kind of move down the rest of the river. Can you tell us more about why this algae is a problem and what exactly is, is causing this build-up? So this is an example of an algal bloom. There are different types of algal blooms. Some can be toxic to humans and animals. Most of them, however, will disrupt the ecosystem that they're in. And that's really like the main focus for me, how these blooms are disrupting the river and lake ecosystems that I've been looking at. And the reason that they've bloomed is nutrient pollution. So there's too many nutrients, one of them is phosphorus, but also things like nitrogen. Too many of these are coming from fertilizer runoff and from our own waste going into our waterways. And the algae feeds off of these pollutants and it just feeds so quickly it grows to this massive rate. And at some point it stops growing and they, they call it crashing or it all kind of dies and then it releases a large amount of carbon dioxide and that has a really bad effect on the rest of the ecosystem and it causes this eventual thing called eutrophication which is the death of the ecosystem and the other organisms like the fish and um, birds. So obviously on observing this and learning more about the completely disruptive effect that it has on ecosystems, you began to think about some kind of design solution or at least design response. And can you tell us a bit about that process? It came from just, just thinking really simple things like, could we just remove it? Would that help? And sometimes what are seemingly the most simple and stupid questions are actually quite good and should be explored further. It would be difficult to remove all of this. They actually do have these weird boats that have like a truck thing on the front of them to try and remove it, but it's it's quite a slow process. So that's what got me thinking about trying to grow it in a more controlled manner, trying to almost farm it. And I also was thinking about like the narrative of farming rather than waste management, which is what it's considered at the moment. Which led him to the idea of designing a phosphorus farm or phos farm. The idea here is that you could cultivate a larger species of macroalgae or freshwater seaweed that displaces the sludgy, naturally occurring microalgae that typically blooms in this area. Samuel told me more about the design of his system. The phos farm design is meant to be simple as possible and it's kind of the algae that's doing the hard work of filtering out these pollutants and it's really just trying to grow it almost like an aquaculture in a controlled area and have it easily harvestable at the end. The idea is that when the algae grows phosphorus phosphates are one of the kind of ingredients for growth. It's also nitrogen and sunlight and in doing so that phosphorus is trapped in the algae removing the algae then removes the phosphorus itself. It's kind of doing this filtration, which is really quite difficult for like, humans and the technology that we have to do. So if you were casually taking a stroll down the River Lee and you looked over uh, onto the water and saw a phos farm, what, yeah. would, you, what would you see? 
So the first one I designed was um, an inflatable. I thought that was important because if we were like realistically going to use this, we'd probably use it in like lots of different rivers. So you'd want it to be transportable. And what's more transportable than an inflatable? It's kind of something that you take and then you inflate onto the river, has a net and it's this big ring. And the design that I made was actually inspired by the look of these other types of algae called diatoms. But also it was inspired by the kind of more radical inflatable architecture of the past, like of the 60s, like ant farm, things like that. The inflatable structure, it's kind of a ring and in the middle of the ring you have netting preventing other detritus from the river coming into contact with the algae. And then along this ring you have eight of these shapes that are jutting out the top of it and you have this central uh, cone which says fast farm as well because you've got to have a bit of advertising. <laughs> the design it could be modular, there could be several attached to each other, it could be different sizes and further on I was thinking it could even be different shapes, it could be this kind of democratised design where people can make it kind of out of anything they want. So you place a starter culture of macroalgae into the middle of this inflatable ring when conditions are optimal for algal blooms. It feeds on the excess phosphorus in the water, growing into a larger form of algae, which is easier to remove. It seems deceptively simple, but... It's a highly scientific process that you've been looking into. And, you know, how did you find, first of all, navigating all of the kind of scientific information around this as a designer? And what do you think design brings to the process that maybe hasn't already been brought by more kind of scientific investigation? So much of it was just delving further and further into research from different areas and looking like what are the specifics of the problem and how do we go about it. Like addressing it, the actual kind of solution or whatever you want to say can seem kind of simple and it is simple and it's meant to be simple because it's okay, what's the easiest and most doable thing? The hard work was in finding the brief almost, or like finding the, the problem to address. And why do I think design is important in this area? I think in one example, I was speaking with a professor who works in water pollution and the phosphorus cycle in the UK. And I was just generating lots of ideas and asking, would this work, would that work? And that's a very different methodology to how academics usually work. Traditionally, they're working through analysis, where I was kind of synthesizing ideas. And I think the power that designers have is to help create new narratives. I don't think that the only way of tackling the issue of phosphorus pollution is to make farmers reduce their inputs. Like the main insights through talking with him was this idea of legacy phosphorus, which is that even if we're to stop using all phosphorus on farms right now, we have between 50 and 100 years of it left in our agricultural farms, and that will keep running off into lakes and rivers. So just stopping inputs is not enough we have to look at outputs and I don't think it was necessarily framed in exactly that way before. 
So as you began to think about the kind of productive aspects of this algae, what did you learn about its you know, potential uses? So at the moment, there's this kind of burgeoning seaweed economy. There's, there's lots of companies that are looking at making replacements for plastics, making biomaterials, different chemicals like nutraceuticals and pharmaceuticals that can be made. And so it's really trying to figure out what's like a realistic product that could be made from this. I think the one from a design perspective that makes the most sense is to use this again as a fertilizer. There's a long history of seaweed and algae being used as fertilizer. And what's nice about it is that it kind of ties the circle, the circularity. It's coming from fertilizer runoff that's being wasted and then it's being recovered and used again as fertilizer. Other ways of reducing algal blooms already exist, but Samuel points out that they're tackling the symptom rather than the underlying phosphorus pollution. In fishing lakes, you can stop algal blooms by adding blue dye to the water, reducing the sunlight that can get to the algae. It's expensive and only a temporary solution. Or there are chemical compounds that can be added to bind to the phosphates and turn them into sediment in the lake. But that's a temporary reaction, and over time the phosphorus will be released back into the water. There are other things like using um, ultrasonic sound to stop the algae from growing. But again, it's not removing the phosphorus, it's just stopping the algae from growing. And when the ultrasonic sound is removed, the algae is able to grow again. So, so all these methods are A, not kind of considering the fact that phosphorus is a resource and that we should be trying to get it out and like, use it for things. And B, they're kind of temporary. And I guess C, they require lots of devices and chemicals. It's evening and our time at the riverside is almost up. A boat chugs past on its way to a mooring nearby and people are heading home or gathering for a post-work drink. Samuel turns his thoughts to the future and his vision for what Fast Farm could become, with both algae and phosphorus intended as a resource. Yeah, I mean, firstly, it would be amazing to one day see on the River Lee something that said Fast Farm, something that was farming some algae. But in terms of what you can do with algae, there's this whole economy and they're finding new things all the time. Yeah, I find it fascinating. Fish oil is really derived from algae rather than fish so they're making vegan versions of fish oil just straight from algae there's kind of supplements nutraceuticals pharmaceuticals biomaterials they're just constantly finding new things i I think it had to be realistic like what you could actually create from something that you get out of a river something like a pharmaceutical is not going to happen. There's super stringent checks for things like that. But then also, I think, from a narrative point of view, it would be great if it was used again as fertiliser. Samuel sees Farm as an open-source structure that can be easily reproduced by anyone, with some people producing large-scale farms while others engage in algae cultivation in a small-scale DIY kind of way. So how does he imagine the radical new world of algae farming and phosphorus capture? There are business models out there. One company that I looked at in particular, they have a model where they give equipment to seaweed farmers and they buy back the seaweed that these farmers grow and they use that to make 
materials. So they're not actually doing the farming themselves, they're doing the processing. And I could very much see something similar to that happening where anyone who lives or owns land that has a lake or something on it can uh, become a FOSS farmer, farm some algae, send it to us, and then we make it into materials. On the kind of design and how you would make the farm, another company that I've looked at has made this kind of online design builder for a seaweed farm. And you add in like how much volume you want to make and other variables, and it tells you how to make it. It would be really interesting to have some kind of equivalent where you're looking at the particular lake and it gives you a list of like, here's the different tools that you could use to make your own FOSS farm. Because if you really like boil down what it's doing, there's a plethora of different methods of making the farm. The amazing thing is that Samuel's project is only a small piece of what's a rapidly growing seaweed economy. With businesses and designers using refined seaweed to make bioplastics, vegan supplements and all kinds of other things. Yes, and the macroalgae or freshwater seaweed that Samuel's proposing can also simply be immediately composted and added to your garden. So it has a really direct reuse application alongside the other exciting developments underway. It's a way for us to mend the phosphorus cycle and waste less of this resource. I'm also interested in the role that designers can play in the sciences, roles that they may not have traditionally played. As Samuel showed us, designers are particularly good at imagining new scenarios or narratives, at making an idea accessible and engaging. Yes, that's exactly right. Where a scientific or industrial position might have framed the problem as how do we most efficiently remove phosphorus from freshwater rivers, Samuel has asked questions like how can people living along the river be part of an exciting initiative? How can this initiative be engaging and eye-catching? And can the result of this pollution removal be a useful or even beautiful material? Exactly. And these are questions that cross disciplines and view the problem from multiple perspectives. That's all for this episode of the Future Observatory podcast. Don't forget to sign up to our monthly newsletter at futureobservatory.org and we'll see you next time. This podcast is supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, part of UK Research and Innovation, and the Design Museum. The producers are Marie Keyworth and Sarah Trina, and the music is by Takahisa Mitsumori. <laughs>